Good morning to you all. Hope you're doing well. If you'd like to go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 8, that's where we'll be this morning. And we're going to look at this chapter. It's uh, for many people, it's uh, their favorite chapter, or at least one of their favorite chapters, and for good reason. All right. Um, Well, let's just go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump right in. Father, we are so very thankful for the opportunity to study your word together. We thank you for this chapter that is loved by your people uh, because of the wonderful truths that we find in it. And we just pray that you bless our conversation, our discussion, help us to see things that we've seen before and yet see them in uh, richer, deeper ways. And we just pray that we would grow in our um, belief in your love for us, as well as um, receive from fresh some fresh supplies of grace through our time this morning. Please bless the Sunday school time as well, and minister to our children and meet the deepest needs of their heart for you also. And please prepare our hearts for worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, well, we are going to start next week, Lord willing. Uh, A study of biblical counseling and discipleship, as I've mentioned, uh, this is a video series that's going to be part video, part discussion, that um, Dan and Mark and Jackson and I are going to team facilitate. And the um, series is kind of um, a dual-purpose series in that it's meant to equip you to encourage other people to live godly lives and to fight sin, which is what we've been talking about for the last couple weeks, but also it teaches you how to do it at the same time because you can't teach someone how to do something unless you know how to do it yourself. And so it's it's both a discipleship as well as a counseling training. And so whether or not you have an interest in uh, counseling other people or not per se, it will be beneficial to you personally as you think through How am I to apply the scriptures in my own life, and how am I to help other people apply the scriptures in their lives? And so uh, we're looking forward to beginning that next week. Um, But we've been talking about these three chapters in the book of Romans, which follow on the heels of Paul's discussion of how we come to be reconciled uh, to God through faith alone in Christ alone. And it talks in chapter 6 about how because of what Christ has done for us, we've been set free from sins, rule and reign over us. Chapter 7 talks about the fact that even though we've been uh, set free, there's still a struggle that we go through. And then chapter 8 uh, focuses on the Holy Spirit and his role in our lives. Now, the bigger picture in all this is that... In chapters 6 through 8, God calls us basically to live in light of what is true of us. Um, As I've said before, many times we will try to grow or fight sin by just applying practical um, strategies. And we need to do that. But Paul starts out in his discussion of how we're to live our Christian lives and overcome sin by saying this is what is true of us as Christians. And it's crucial that we understand what is true of us and that we believe what is true of us as we seek to fight sin and pursue love because uh, sin is the opposite of love and so we were to fight sin and seek to pursue love and knowing who we are in Christ and what God has done for us in Christ is crucial to that and so what I'd like to do is I'd like to read Uh, chapter 8 for us, and then we're going to watch a a Bible Project video that kind of summarizes the the picture that we have in in the Bible regarding the Holy Spirit, and then we'll begin to to discuss what we find in these chapters. So in verse 1 of Romans 8, it says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as a offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us 
who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but delivered him over for us all, How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen and amen. 
Well, let's watch a uh, summary of what we find with regard to the Holy Spirit in the Bible, since this chapter is very much about the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives as believers. If you've ever heard the phrase, the Holy Spirit, and you want to know what it means, where do you start? Well, you have to start on page one of the Bible, where the uncreated world is depicted as this dark, chaotic place. But then above the chaos, God's Spirit is there, hovering, ready to bring about life and order and beauty. Okay, but... What is God's Spirit? Yeah, so the Spirit is the way the biblical authors talk about God's personal presence. The Hebrew word is ruach. Ruach. Yeah, you got to clear your throat at the end. So what is it? Well, ruach can refer to a number of different things, but what they all have in common is energy. Energy? How so? So there's an invisible energy that makes the clouds move or the tree branches sway. Right. Wind. So in Hebrew, that's ruach. Okay. Now take a big breath. So you feel that inside you. Yeah, the air? Well, specifically the energy, right? The vitality in your body that you get from breathing deeply. That, too, is ruach. And this is the same word used in the Bible to describe God's personal presence. Just like wind and breath are invisible, God's spirit is invisible. Wind is powerful, and so God's spirit is powerful. And just as breath keeps us alive, so God's spirit sustains all of life. Yeah, ruach. Now, as we continue on in the story of the Bible, we see God's Ruach giving special empowerment to people for specific tasks. The first person in the Bible this happens to is Joseph. God's Spirit enables him to understand and interpret dreams. And then it happens to this guy named Bezalel, and he's an artist. God's Spirit empowers him with wisdom and skills. He's given creative genius to make beautiful things in the tabernacle. And we also see God's Ruach empower a group of people called the prophets. They're able to see what's happening happening in history from God's point of view. That's exactly right. And here's the problem as the prophets saw it. While God's Ruach had created a really good world, humans have given in to evil. They've unleashed chaos into it through their injustice. A new type of disorder. Yes. And the prophet said the spirit would come, just like in Genesis 1, but now to transform the human heart, to empower people to truly love God and others. How will this new act of God's spirit happen? Well, centuries pass and we are introduced to Jesus. And at the beginning of his mission, there's this beautiful scene where Jesus is being baptized in the waters of the Jordan River. Yeah, the sky opens up and God's spirit comes and rests on him like a bird. This story is saying that God's spirit is empowering Jesus to begin the new creation. And we see this happening when he heals people or forgives their sins. He's creating life where there once was death. Now, Israel's religious leaders oppose Jesus, and they eventually have him killed. But even here, God's spirit is at work. The earliest disciples of Jesus, who saw him alive from the dead, said it was God's energizing spirit that raised Jesus. This is the beginning of new creation. Yes, and it's still going. When Jesus appeared to his closest followers, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And soon after that, the Spirit powerfully comes on all of his disciples. So that they can become a part of this new creation and share the good news and learn how to live by the energy and influence of God's Spirit. And so today, the Spirit is still hovering in dark places. Yes, pointing people to Jesus, transforming and empowering them so they can love God and others. And the Christian hope is that the Spirit is going to finish the job. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a new humanity, living in a new world that's permeated with God's love and life-giving spirit. All right, so that's just a brief summary of, a, of what we see in the Bible with regard to the Holy Spirit. And obviously, um, they make the connection between the original creation, the physical creation, and how the Holy Spirit was involved in Genesis chapter 1 and those following chapters in terms of what happened there in the beginning. And they're connecting it to the new creation, which is God creating new people by giving them new hearts and empowering them to love God and love others. And so that's a great introduction to the kinds of things that Paul is going to be talking about in Romans chapter 8. But before we get into that, I just want us to um, think uh, very briefly about what we've learned so far about how Paul is arguing in Romans 6 and Romans 7. 
In Romans 6, he's basically answering the question, if we've been forgiven and made righteous through faith in Christ alone, um, should we be concerned about sin? And the answer to that is yes. Why? Do you remember some of the reasons he gives in Romans 6 about why we should be concerned about sin? If you do, and you'd like to share that, raise your hand, but think about that at least. Why should sin be something we're concerned about? Okay, it leads to death. Okay, and Linda, add to that. Thank you, Jonathan. Just how when we were baptized into Christ, we were baptized into his death, and so we have died to sin. Okay, and so the work of Christ was to deliver us from sin, both its penalty and its power over our lives. And that's because sin leads to death, just like Dan said, that God's heart for us is that we would know his joy. Isn't that what Jesus said in John 15? I've told you these things that you might have my joy. But in order to have his joy, sin has to be dealt with, both in terms of penalty and in terms of its power over our lives. And so it's helpful to me to think about the fact that God created us to find our happiness in him, but because we are sinful, that requires two things. It requires humility that receives what Christ has done for us so that we can be rescued from the penalty of our sin, but it also requires growth in holiness. And that growth in holiness, which is fighting sin, enables us to have more of God's joy, more happiness in God, so that one day when we're glorified, there will be no more sin, and therefore we will have full and lasting joy in God. But right now, in this life, many times my happiness is based on how well I'm resting in Jesus in light of what he's done for me as a sinner and whether or not I'm pursuing holiness. Those two things greatly affect my experience of happiness in God. And and so that's why fighting of sin is important, at least that's part of the reason for it. Uh, we just highlighted the fact that In Christ, there's no condemnation, but there's also no complacency because sin does bring death. And we've been united to Christ who died to deliver us from the reign of sin. And we're called to repent, which is to turn to God and present our lives to God. In chapter 7, Paul brings in the reality that it's it's, um, kind of a messy thing. That uh, chapter 6 says we're free from sin, but chapter 7 says things are kind of messy. Um, so if we are free from sin, then why do we still sin? What kinds of things do you remember from that discussion from last week that stood out to you? Karen? Um, it has to do with our sin nature. Although you were calling it something different, but I think that's what you meant. Yes. I mean, there are different terms that people use. Sin nature, flesh, and dwelling sin. There's different kinds of terms because of the Bible uses different terms to describe that same reality and so there is still in us something that is just like what we were before we were saved but that's not all we are and that is not truly who we are we are truly new creations in Christ and Paul could say um, when I do the thing that I don't want to do it's not really me it's sin it's indwelling sin, which he's not shirking responsibility responsibility for it. He's simply saying that the, the person that's going to last is not the person who's sinning. It's the person who really wants to please God, who has a heart for, for God, which is the new creation that has begun in us. And so he argues that we've been set free from the law, and yet sin still uses the law against us, even though it's good. The problem is not the law. Uh, the problem is indwelling sin or the flesh or the sin nature that we still have, depending on what terms you might use. And that's why at the very end of chapter 7, he talks about the fact that we're in a war. And so he says in verse 21, I find then the principle, this is chapter 7, that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? 
Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself am with my mind, I'm serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. And then he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So even though he's talked about the fact that there's a real battle going on, there's a real war going on, and many times I do the very thing I don't want to do. Very, I, I sin against God. He still says, but there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But it still begs the question, if we are in a war between the remnants of the old man, called the flesh or the sin nature or whatever it might be called, and the reality of the new man, there's a conflict there. The person we've been made, you could say, or the new heart we've been given and the man that's being formed in us that loves God. How do we overcome indwelling sin as forgiven believers? And so that's the big question that he addresses uh, in this chapter is, so on the one hand, I'm free from sin. On the other hand, I still have this battle with indwelling sin. So how do I overcome it? What What is the key? And he begins his discussion of the Holy Spirit and the importance of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Um, when you think about simply the question, how am I going to overcome sin? And if someone says, well, it's only by the Spirit. What would that translate into personally and practically for you? How would you hear that? How are you going to overcome sin? It's only by the Holy Spirit. Question mark. What does that mean? Personally and practically, what kinds of things come to your mind when you think about what it means to say, um, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit? Can you overcome sin? Um, What do you think would be the implications of that or the applications of that? Sharon? Um, The work of the Holy Spirit, he convicts us of the wrong things we've done because we've been in the Word and we can see it and we know that the power comes from God and that's the Holy Spirit in this situation. Okay. And so part of the role of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of the sin that we need to fight, right? I mean, a big problem in our day and time right now is just defining sin. What sin? And our society wants to say, well, that's not sin anymore, and that's not sin anymore. And so part of the role of the Holy Spirit is to clarify in our own hearts and minds through the Bible, through the Word of God, what is actually sin that needs to be fought, and then to lead us in that direction. Uh, Scott? We don't do very well at battling sin with our own flesh um, like making good habits or whatever I mean those are great great things but we need to cry out to God Abba Father and and when we seek the Lord then his spirit will empower us and help us Um, so we're we're looking to God to do it because only he can really change us Um, like when we get saved we can't save ourselves Mm -hmm. very good and so um to walk by the Spirit is to be dependent. It's to, to be dependent on God to enable us to do what we can't do in ourselves. And Luke 11 talks about the fact that we have a Father who loves to give us good things and will give us the Holy Spirit if we ask Him. And so that's a huge part of what it means to apply the truth that I can't overcome this except by the Holy Spirit is to ask for the Holy Spirit, to pray God would enable us to do what we can't do on our own. Mark? When I think about uh, large sins or, or ongoing sins and, and continuing on as a believer, I always think of Psalm 51, which we talked about on the men's retreat, in terms of David and Bathsheba. You know, after David committed the sin with Bathsheba and all that was rolled into that, how did he respond? And Psalm 51 to me is kind of that full-orbed walk through a believer recognizing their sin, recognizing the judgment due, um, you know, where he basically says, you know, you are just in your judgment against me, God. Basically, I completely deserve your just wrath. But then he goes on to say, 
because of your sacrifice, I can be cleansed, you know, purify me with hyssop, you know, sacrificial covering. Um, and, then, and then a turn to repentance that says, I'm going to tell others about your goodness after you've kind of walked through this whole picture of repentance and turning. Um, so I think all these components that we've talked about are involved, and, and it's, it's a, a, an extensive process. It's not just a, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to put a few practical ways that I'm going to avoid this sin or, or I'm going to apologize and it's going to be over. No, we have to submit to the Lord and walk through repentance and turning. It's very good. And you touched on something that's very important because if we keep all these chapters together, Romans 6, 7, and 8, obviously one uh, important role of the Holy Spirit is to convince us of the things that Paul has just said are true. That we need to really believe. Jesus said... Uh, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. So there's a, there's a connection between the truth of God and the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God has to convince us of the truth of God so that we can truly walk in the freedom that has been granted to us. Dan? The mystery between, of um, <clears throat> how faith and obedience work together is challenging for me. But <clears throat> So, I mean, I, kn- I know that nothing... Only, only what's born of faith is ultimately good. So on that grounds, then you know, I ask the question, well, okay, so what am I supposed to do? Um, what does faith and obedience look like? So um, the Bible talks about sin as being um, something that's like a, like a plant that sends down roots into the soil and then grows up and then produces fruit. And in order for sin to, um, to be dealt with in our lives as Christians, it's, it's got to be... Ultimately, the root of sin needs to be severed, and that happens as we uh, a lot of things. But one way to look at it is we change the soil. Um, we we cultivate the truth of God's word into the soil of our heart, so that the root of sin can't grow. It it, it dies. It it's starved, and it's replaced with righteous fruit or, or righteous growth. Um, so. There has to be an active putting to death of sin by a life that's cultivating that which will produce the opposite of sin, which is God's righteousness, and will ultimately kill or starve out the things that cause sin to grow. And um, I'm sure you're going to talk about this, but that has to do with what we believe in. What we believe is ultimately going to give, give us life and it's believing in the promises of God instead of the promises of sin. That's what changes the cult of the the nature of the soil that's in our hearts that will allow one thing to grow and not the other. Okay, very good. So um, one of the things that I think is hard for us to embrace is the idea that to be dependent on the Holy Spirit to do something requires a lot of work on my behalf, on my part. It seems like if I'm dependent on somebody, I'm just letting them do it. But that's not the picture that we have in the scriptures. It's that my dependence on the Holy Spirit results in me working very, very hard. (laughs) You know, Paul says, I buffet my body and I make it my slave. Um, And so that's the, the paradox, maybe, that we have to grasp is I am to be completely dependent on God to enable me to overcome sin, but that actually should move me to be more diligent in working out my salvation, as Paul could say, not less diligent, to, to cause me to fight more, not less. And it's that is very much tied to what Dan just highlighted, um, our trust in the promises of God and our pursuit of our happiness in God in light of what he's promised us. So let's go ahead and look at Romans 8 with the time that we have left, because our time always flies by, and this is there's just so much in this chapter. But... Um, just, I'm going to try to break it down this way. Um, there's a lot of these first 17 verses, but I'm going to summarize the first 17 verses by saying the indwelling spirit enables us to put to death sin. That seems to be Paul's uh, primary point in all this. He starts out by saying there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He argues that Christ came to um, deliver us from sin. And in verse 4 it says, um, at the end of verse 3 he says, Christ came, he condemned sin in the flesh, which seems to be a reference to he condemned sin uh, through his body, which 
there's a lot of this chapter that's hard to translate and hard to understand what Paul is really saying, but he appears to be saying uh, Jesus overcame sin and, in a sense, condemned sin and overcame it through his death on the cross. And in verse 4, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That's taken two ways. Some people will say he did what he did through his life and his death so that we wouldn't have to fulfill the law, but he fulfills it for us. Others would say that that being true, Paul's point isn't that uh, Jesus simply came to fulfill the law for us, but that he also came to enable us to fulfill the law. And that's the point of the next reference to the Holy Spirit, that that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I think both are true. Jesus came to fulfill the law for us, but he also has given us his Holy Spirit that we might begin to walk in obedience to the law of God, to to love, because the law of God is all about loving, loving God and loving, loving people. And so he goes on to talk about the difference between being in the flesh or being in the spirit. Now, I know growing up in the church, there are many times people would say, you know, I did what I did because I was in the flesh. And according to this chapter and the way that Paul uses it, he would say, no, you didn't, because there's no believer that's in the flesh. If you're a believer, you're in the spirit. And so I know what people mean, and I've probably used that same um, terminology at times. Um, We're talking about basically I gave in to my flesh or I, you know, gave in to temptation. That's what someone might mean when they said, well, when I said that or did that, I was in the flesh. They're talking about giving in to sinful desires or impulses or whatever it might be. But Paul actually makes a strict distinction here in this chapter and says, if you're a believer, you're not in the flesh, you are in the spirit. And I just think that's another challenge to the way we tend to see ourselves. And we need to think about how Paul says that you need to think about yourself as being someone who's not in the flesh, in the realm of the flesh, uh, dominated by your flesh, uh, simply a slave to your flesh, but you are in the spirit. You, you've got a, uh, a new relationship with God and a new power from God in the sphere of the Holy Spirit. And so our uh, attitude toward fighting sin should be positive, not negative. And I think that is part of the impetus there. But then he goes on to talk about the fact in verse 12, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the, to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of, deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Now, when you think about being led by the Spirit, um, what do you typically think of? What does that phrase usually bring to mind when you think about being led by the Spirit? Okay, Jan? I was going to say first what Scott said, being led, the the Spirit leads me to cry out to Him, independence, independence. Um, and I think after that, um, I think just the spirit opening my ears to hear things differently than I've heard them before, or to open my eyes to see things differently than I've seen before. And then to have the enabling to follow up on, okay, since you're hearing this new, since you're seeing this new, what, what should my behavior be in response to that? To me, that's kind of a simplistic way of saying that to me day by day being led um, according to his word obviously seeing anyway that being the basis okay and I think that's probably the way most of us hear that when we hear someone talk about being led by the spirit interestingly that's not the way Paul's using this phrase in this passage he's using it in terms of being led to actually address sin in our lives now that can be connected but I guess what I'm saying is sometimes we think of being led by the Spirit in terms of, well, I felt led to say something to this person at the grocery store, or I felt, you know, felt like God was telling me how to marry this person, or you know, or whatever it might be, that kind of leading. But like you say, um, I, Paul uses a very specific 
uh, leading of the Spirit that is related to the Word of God in terms of the issue of sin. And that's my point, is that not that it can't be broader than that, but Paul is focusing on the reality that one of the assurances that I'm truly a child of God is that the Holy Spirit is at work in me to address sin and to seek to put it to death. Now, because we're going to have the flesh all of our lives, um, most believers don't take the position that some have taken is that you can eradicate sin from your life before death. Um, entire sanctification or those kinds of things. Most believers historically have not taken that position. And so when he talks about putting to death sin, I think one of the best ways to understand what he's talking about is, well, there's two aspects of it. One, I think Dan was touching on when he talked about trying to sever the root of sin in our lives, which is very much about the renewing of our minds and making sure that our hope is set in the right place in terms of what we're looking to for our happiness. But practically every day, the other part of what comes to mind is just the fact that, you know, throughout our day, we're going to be tempted to desire things and uh, say things and do things and think things that are wrong. And the question is, am I addressing those thoughts, those desires, those words, and those actions? And is the Holy Spirit saying, you know, that, that thought is not right, or that, that desire is not right, that, that, that would not be a good thing to say, that would not be the right thing to do? Is he leading us to address those wrong thoughts and desires and words and actions? And as they come up, the Holy Spirit puts his finger on it, and that's when the battle begins. That's when the putting to death needs to come. That's when, like Sarone often says, <clears throat> quoting Paul, I need to take that thought into captivity to Christ. I need to address that thought in light of what the Bible says. Or in terms of my desire, I want this, but it's not what I ought to want. Or it is something that's good to want, but I want it too much. And I need to address that. Or I want to say something in this situation, but I know um, it would not be uh, being quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. It would be the opposite of that. And so I have to fight not to just say whatever I want to say. And in the same thing, actions that I shouldn't do. So putting to death the deeds of the body, I think, is related to in chapter 6, where he says in verse 12, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Which means sin is personified there. It's something in me. It uses my body, my physical being, my, my brain and my um, stomach and my desire, my, um, my physical uh, being in various ways. And it produces lusts, desires, just another word for desire. And there are thoughts involved with those desires. And ultimately, my words and my actions come out of those thoughts and desires that are the lusts that are going on in my heart. And Paul says, don't let those things reign. Don't let them rule over you. Don't give in to them. And the Holy Spirit is the one who helps us to identify those wrong thoughts and desires and words and actions, and who is going to be at work in us to say, you need to fight that, you need to put that to death. And that's on a case-by-case basis. I mean, it's not like I have an angry thought, I put it to death, and I never have an angry thought again. It's every time that comes up. It's kind of like a whack-a-mole. You've played whack-a-mole, right? And it's kind of like whack-a-mole. The, the, the mole sticks his head up, you knock it back down. It sticks its head up, you knock it back down. To me, I think that's what Paul is talking about in putting to death sin. Sin raises its ugly head in terms of wrong thoughts and desires, wanting to move us toward wrong words and actions, and we're to address it at the point of um, wrong thoughts and desires. But we don't always 
restrain ourselves. Sometimes we go ahead and say things we shouldn't and do things we shouldn't. Then we have to address it at that level too. And so the work of the Holy Spirit in us is a daily thing. It's a continual fight to not simply give in to those things, but to to depend on the Holy Spirit to help us to kill them. Someone has said uh, putting to death in this context means killing them off, uh, getting rid of them altogether. It's a continuing activity. It's something we can. It's not something we can do once and for all and be done with. It's a daily duty. And so our, our life is a daily fight against those things that are sin in light of the fact that I can't love God in sin, I can't love my spouse in sin, I can't love anyone else in sin, and therefore if I want to love God and I want to love the people around me, I have to fight sin. And so the negative putting to death is for the positive of loving people and loving God as I should. Well, um, there's a lot more in this chapter, and he touches on a, a number of things that I think relate to other things that Paul says in these three chapters. And in chap- uh, verses 18 through 25, he touches on the fact that the Holy Spirit leads us to persevere. And he has a discussion about hope and the fact that we live in a creation that, in a sense, is groaning longing to be different. And he says that we are like the creation, the larger creation. We long to be free from this fight against sin and the uh, frequent failure to actually put it to death. I mean, Paul isn't saying that if you're, if you're living like you should, uh, you're not ever going to sin. He's not saying that if you're walking according to the Spirit, you're, you're never going to sin in the sense that even if I'm seeking to walk by the Spirit, I'm not going to do it perfectly. Because he, even he as an apostle could say, I do the very thing I don't want to do. And certainly he was seeking to put to death sin in his own life, and he still sinned. And so... He's not talking about perfection. He's talking about direction. Is my life moving in the direction of, yes, I I want to deal with the sinful thoughts, the sinful desires, as well as the sinful words and actions in my life? Am I depending on the Holy Spirit? And um, how am I doing that? I probably should highlight the fact that uh, when Paul talks earlier in the chapter about um, the mindset on the flesh, or, the, or excuse me, if you're in the flesh, you set your mind on the things of the flesh. If you're in the spirit, you set your mind on the things of the spirit. I believe if you take in all that Paul says about the idea of the things of the spirit. He's talking about the truth of the word of God. The things of the spirit are what the Holy Spirit has given us in the Bible. And so my setting my mind on the things of the spirit isn't you know, trying to imagine some nebulous Holy Spirit floating around and and in some sense trying to, you know, hope that that nebulous Holy Spirit is going to help me. No, it's, it's, it's understanding that the Bible is what the Holy Spirit has given us and that he's the spirit of truth, Jesus says. And therefore, to depend on the Holy Spirit is to depend on the Holy Spirit of truth who, who said, uh, excuse me, that Jesus said, would set us free. And so therefore, I focus on the truth of what Paul has said about, I'm not a slave of sin. Sin shall not be my master. I'm not under the condemnation of the law. I do have God indwelling me. I think about all the truth that Paul talks about here, not only in these chapters, but in other places as well, that is meant to free me from thinking that I can't be different. And the Holy Spirit helps me to believe those truths and to apply those truths so that we're not like the elephant who's you know thousands of pounds and could jerk out that little stake he's tied to easily, but in his mind he thinks he can't do it. And so if I think I can't be different, I can't be more loving to this particular person, or I can't 
forgive this person or I can't accept this person or I can't serve this person or I can't handle this situation. If I think in my mind that I can't, then then my unbelief will keep me enslaved to a wrong response. But the reality is I've been put in a position in Christ where I can make progress. Not that I can be perfect. Paul isn't arguing for, arguing for perfection, but he is saying you can respond more lovingly. You can be more gracious. You can be more kind. And you can um, find joy in these circumstances because I've set you free from the very thing that keeps you from that. And so that's why Paul's going to say in Romans 12 that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. We're transformed by beginning to really believe what is true. And so the Holy Spirit works to um, help us to really believe that God loves us, to really believe that we're forgiven, to really believe that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, that I'm not uh, bound by my past, that I'm defined by my past. I've always had trouble here. I'll always have trouble here. And Paul's arguing against all those things and encouraging us not to simply um, be content with that. Again, that doesn't mean perfection. doesn't mean we won't have a struggle, especially in certain areas, but it means that we ought to be very optimistic about what God can do and intends to do in our relationships and in our heart and in our life. And therefore, in verses 18 through 25, getting back to that, the Holy Spirit... Uh, works in us so that we persevere in hope, believing that um, even though we still do things we shouldn't do, like it says in Romans 7, um, we're not going to give up. We're going to keep fighting. We're going to keep seeking to um, put to death sin, uh, even if we fail. Um, the word for perseverance in verse 25 is actually a a, a word that describes the attitude of a soldier who's in the thick of battle and even though the battle is tough and hard he doesn't quit he keeps fighting that's the picture of the word perseverance there continuing to fight not giving in not just settling for it's the way i've always been i'll never find joy in these circumstances you know We continue to fight, depending on the Holy Spirit and looking to ask him to help us to believe what is true and then to live in light of what is true. Um, Then he goes on in verses 26 and 27 to talk about prayer and how the Holy Spirit uh, helps us in our prayer. The word for prayer there could be, or excuse me, the word for helps when he says, um, In verse 26, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The word for helps there um, is actually a word that could be pictured in terms of two men carrying a heavy log. And one is on one end and one is on the other end. And they're moving this log together. And so what's the point there? I believe the point is... As I pray, I'm not the only one praying. The Holy Spirit is praying as I pray. Why is that important? Because many times I pray for the wrong things. I ask for the wrong things. Or even if I'm asking for the right things, I don't know all the right things to ask. And I don't know everything I ought to be praying about for a particular person or for a particular situation, or even for a a particular battle that I have in my own life. I don't know everything to pray, and I don't know everything to ask for, and yet, as I pray, the Holy Spirit is praying. And he's praying in accordance with the will of God. And so, that is meant to be a great encouragement, especially when you feel like, I don't know how to pray very well. Well, just pray. Even if you don't think you pray very well, because the Holy Spirit prays perfectly. And he will pray as you pray. You're carrying one end of the log, so to speak. This is just an analogy. He's carrying the other end of the log. You're working together, and he's making up for your weakness. 
He's making up for your ignorance. He's making up for the fact that you're asking for some things you shouldn't be asking for. He's making up for all that. And he's doing that for me. And that's meant to be a great encouragement that the work of the Holy Spirit is to um, pray as we pray, to intercede for us, to make up for the fact that, yeah, we, we're still, we still have sinful desires and sinful thoughts and we don't think right all the time. We don't desire right all the time. And a lot of times our prayers are very heavily misshapen by wrong thinking and wrong desires. And yet the Holy Spirit is there praying exactly what needs to be prayed for us. And therefore, there's never a wasted prayer time. Never. Even if you think you have slept through half of it, there's never a wasted prayer time. And so it's a great encouragement to give ourselves to pray. And then he he goes on to talk about the fact that this prayer is very closely related to uh, the issue of promises, and I'm highlighting the issue of uh, promises because this is one of the most cherished promises in the Bible. And the Spirit leads us to rest in all the promises of God, but you could argue that in these few verses here, we have um, sort of a summary of the promises that God has given us because of Christ. He says in verse 28, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So the promise is, if you love God, which means if you're trusting in Jesus, and all those who are truly trusting in Jesus truly love God. may not love him perfectly, don't love him fully. Uh, That's certainly true. We don't love him fully and perfectly until we get to heaven. But there is some love for God if there is faith in Christ. If we're depending on Christ um, as our Savior and our Lord, then there is some love for God. And so this is a promise to all believers. It's not just for you know mature believers who love God, and then there's some believers that don't love God. So No, this is all believers he's talking about. And the promise is God works all things together for good, even your sin. Now, that doesn't mean like Paul says in Romans 6, that we should continue sinning. It just means we need not despair in the face of our sin or in the face of our failure or in the face of our disappointment or our trials, that he's he's working all things for our good. There's nothing that in the end we're going to say, I didn't benefit at all from that and it wasn't worth it. No, God is going to turn that evil or that suffering or that loss into good gain um, healing all the things that we really long for and so it's an incredible incredible promise but he ties it to God's work he ties it to the fact that there are five things it says verse 29 and 30 that God foreknew his people which Many people would say that's a way of saying he set his love on us before we were even created. And he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. So all those he set his love on to save, he predestined that they become like his son. And all those he foreknew and predestined, he called, which means he uh, called us through the preaching of the gospel and he gave us a heart to respond to it. And all he called, he justified. That all those who responded in faith in Christ, obviously by God's work, uh, in calling, um, effectual calling, as some say, um, are justified. There's nobody who's trusting in Christ and Christ alone that isn't going to be justified. And then he says, if you're justified by Christ and Christ alone, don't worry, you'll be glorified. You're not going to fall away. You're not going to lose your salvation. Even if you are very aware of how sinful you are still, even as a believer in Jesus, don't worry. Uh, he uses a uh, an aorist tense, which people believe that he used that tense of the verb for glor- glorified to say it's a done deal. It's a guarantee. It hasn't happened yet, but it's as good as done. And so... Uh, The promise is God's going to complete the work that he's begun. And we can trust him to work 
everything together for our good. And that that kind of promise is meant to help us overcome sin, as Dan was talking about earlier. It's meant to help sever the root of sin. Because if I believe what I'm going through, as hard as it may be and as painful as as it may be, is really going to be worked for my good, it's meant to sever the root of complaining. And it's meant to free me to rejoice in all things and to give thanks for all things. If if the Holy Spirit helps us to really apply that promise in hard circumstances, then we can fight the sin of complaining and being afraid and being discouraged. And we can actually rejoice and give thanks and love in the midst of those difficult circumstances. But it's tied to believing the promises of God. So there's a sense in which we need to believe what is true of us, our position in Christ. On the other hand, we need to believe what has been promised us in Christ. I need to believe that I don't have to sin per se, um, because I've been set free from sin, but I also need to believe that God is working all things together for my good. I need to believe both those things, both my position in Christ and the promises of God to me in Christ. And as the Holy Spirit helps us to believe those and apply those in specific situations, we are set free to respond appropriately. But just like um, playing whack-a-mole is putting to death sin every day as as it rises, uh, you just don't believe the promise of God that he's uh, working all things together for your good, and that's it. And everything's fine. Now, you have to apply that promise in every situation. So you get a fresh opportunity to believe that promise and to apply it. That's why I can say, yeah, I believe that promise and still worry. Because that promise isn't being adequately applied in that situation. So I can, in principle, agree. Yes, I believe that's what God has promised me. But I have to put to death sin by actually applying it in individual situations, day by day, moment by moment, as, I, as I'm battling wrong thoughts, I'm battling wrong desires, I'm battling wrong res- responses with my mouth or with my actions. Every day is a fresh and new day to fight sin and to apply the truth of who I am in Christ and what God has promised me. And that's why it's, it's never we're never done fighting And it's why just knowing it doesn't just enable me to never sin again because I have to believe it in my present circumstances, apply it in my present circumstances. And the Holy Spirit is with me to enable me to do that. Well, the last thing, and I'll just close with this because we're out of time, is that, and this is one of the most uh, beloved parts of this chapter, is the part on the love of God. And um, in reading through Uh, the book on communion by John Owen, he talks about the fact that when we worship together or as a church or when we have our own quiet times, the Holy Spirit is at work to do two things, give us fresh supplies of grace and to convince us even more that God loves us. And that's important because um, Paul highlights the fact that life is not going to be easy. It's going to be filled with tribulation, distress, persecution, maybe even famine, nakedness, peril, and a sword. Um, And yet he says in verse 37, In all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. So that you could argue that there's nothing more important than believing that God loves you in Christ and because of Christ. And that it's the work of the Holy Spirit to convince us of that, that you could say that that's very closely related to the idea that he's working all things together for my good. How do I know that? Because he loves me. He loves me and he loves me perfectly so that he's working all things together for my good because it's his heart to work all things together for my good and he's doing it perfectly. Do I believe that? If I believe that, it will motivate me not to sin against a God so wonderful and so good 
who loves me so much. And it will actually help me in my fight to love him and love others more. The Bible says, we love because he first loved us. My love for God and my love for others is very much based on and rooted in and and shaped by whether or not I believe God loves me. And so one of the most important functions of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to convince us in every situation, in the midst of famine, God loves me. In the midst of tribulation, God loves me. In the midst of being killed, God loves me. And that those things aren't contrary to that. It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit to convince us of that and to enable us to overcome that. Overcome it in what way? We continue trusting God. We continue trusting in his love for us. We continue trusting in what Christ has done for us. And we seek to love in the middle of it. We love in the midst of the famine. We love in the midst of the tribulation. We overcome it through faith and love that continues on in those things because we believe we're convinced of the love of God for us because of all that Christ has done. Let's pray. Father, we're out of time, but I thank you so much for this chapter. It's so rich, and we've just touched on uh, a few things in it, but I pray that somehow you would use it to encourage us in light of where we are today and in light of our fight against sin and our desire to grow in love for you and in love for each other. Please help us in applying it, and please convince us more and more of your great love for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.